I mentioned a bit ago that we're going to talk about joy today. And it, it seems a little odd to talk about joy um, on the heels of another national tragedy. Um, of course, the, the synagogue shooting in San Diego yesterday. Um, and it's just when our Jewish brothers and sisters aren't safe on Saturdays in their places of worship, it was six months to the day from the Pittsburgh shooting. When our Muslim brothers and sisters aren't safe on Fridays in their prayer gatherings, when our Christian brothers and sisters aren't safe in their gatherings, um, we have some issues in the world. Would you agree? Um, our, our friend Brian McLaren wrote a book several years ago that was called Everything Must Change. And that book feels, that title feels really, really uh, applicable to the world we live in now. That things have to change. Um, and what I hope happens today is that we try to reframe joy and see it in a little bit of a different way. So that even in moments of tragedy and grief, that there's still this reality called joy um, that we can grab onto. But I'd like to begin today just with a moment of, just a moment of brief silence. And then I want to offer a prayer um, for our, our brothers and sisters in the world who have been, um, who have been uh, the victims of evil. Um, so let's do that as we begin. God in whom we live, move, and exist, we acknowledge and stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, and anyone else um, who has been the victim of these sorts of heinous evil attacks. We pray for a spirit of perseverance, spirit of compassion, spirit of generosity, and a spirit of justice to permeate our lives and our relationships and our worlds. And we acknowledge that uh, life is a lot like a roller coaster when, when it comes to how we feel emotionally, that there are moments of ups and downs. Um, so may we be there for one another. May we show our love and support for one another. May we use our voices when it's appropriate to speak out on behalf of those who do not have a voice. And we pray that because we gathered today and because we live our lives this week, that the world will be a bit better than it was before. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So uh, in our bathroom at home, um, we have two sinks and two mirrors. And right in the middle of our mirrors is this sort of, I don't know if you call it a plaque or a, a wall hanging, maybe the technical term for it. And it says, joy comes in the morning. And every morning I get up, and I brush the sleep out of my eyes, and I stagger into the bathroom grumpily. And the first thing I do when I stand and sort of look in the mirror is I see that sign, and I think the same thing every morning. False. <laughs> False. I know it comes from a psalm, but it just isn't true. Joy does not come in the morning. Nobody in my house is a morning person, except for maybe Ava, um, Ava just gets excited at all times of day. Like she's just happy that it's a time of day. The rest of us, we wake up, we're grumpy, we make some coffee, we sort of trudge around the house for a few minutes, just just grunting at each other, inviting everybody to keep their distance from us. We're not morning people, um, and to talk about joy in the morning just seems a little phony at our house. So we keep it there. I, I was talking to my wife Carla about this this week, and she said she actually bought it, hoping that it would help. Like, that just seeing it would be like, yes, we can do this. We can be joyful in the morning. It just, it just hadn't happened yet. 
Uh, and and w- when you talk about joy, it's, it's kind of a difficult subject to talk about. It, what is it? How, how do you define it? How do you measure it? How do you, what do you do with it? When, when you talk about joy, it feels a little bit like you're trying to nail jello to the wall. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, you can try and try and try, it just isn't going to work. And so, what do you do when you want to talk about joy? If you're a preacher, you open the Bible, right? Because you're hoping there's something in there. And can I spoiler alert this for you just a little bit? The Bible doesn't help on this topic. It just doesn't. You can read it cover to cover, and it says lots of stuff about joy. And just it, on the face of it, none of it seems to be helpful. Let me give you this verse from 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Ready? You ready for this? Rejoice always. What? This was written by a man who's never stood in line. He's never been stuck in draft traffic, right? This is written by somebody who has no idea what it's like to be us in our world. Rejoice always. And if you flip those words around, it doesn't help. Always rejoice. There's still two words there that are telling you, and it's not like a suggestion, it's, a, it's in the imperative. You rejoice always. So I decided I'm going to look these words up in their original language and unlock some sort of key of brilliance that's going to help this make sense. And you know what the words are in the original language? Pantote kairete. That's a ton of fun to say. Try it. Pantote kairete. Isn't that fun? You know what it means literally? Always be joying. How many of you ever gone joying? That's literally what it means. And it sounds fun to say, pantote kairete. It just sounds like you're ready for a good time when you're breaking out pantote kairete. Here's the problem. It still means the same thing. Always rejoice. Always be joying. This command to do a thing. Later, the same writer, Paul, in Philippians, says like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Right? Same two words. And he just adds the Lord in there. Because when you really want to bring it up to a little bit of authority, you got to say the Lord, right? The Lord. The Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Here's the problem. Can you command joy? How many of you have ever told somebody, stop worrying? And they were like, I never thought of that. I should totally stop worrying. Done. In the late 80s, Bobby McFerrin had the song, right? Don't worry. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was that easy? If you could just wake up and go, I am worried and upset and frustrated and I'm just going to be happy. That's just not how it works, is it? You don't command that sort of thing. There's no switch to flip. It's like when you're angry or you've been hurt by somebody and they're like, well, I said I'm sorry. Okay, well, let me just flip the switch and we'll move on. That's not how humanity works. People can say to you, be joyful always, rejoice in the Lord always, till they're blue in the face, and that does nothing for you internally, right? Rejoice in the Lord always, always rejoice. Here's another one from James chapter 1. My brothers and sisters, think of the various tests or trials you encounter as occasions for joy. Thank you. That, that verse should always be followed with a, oh, right? How many of you think of the word test and trial and joy in the same sentence? That was the worst day of my life. It was such a joy, right? Nobody says that because that's not really how we perceive the world. But James here, 
says, not rejoice, but think of your trials, your struggles, your limitations, the things that come up against you in the world as occasions for joy. Now here's why I think these passages understood at face value can be unhelpful. I think these passages, when we read them, and it says, rejoice always, think of your difficult moments as occasions for joy, it can actually heap guilt and shame on us because it's just another thing we aren't doing. Has anybody ever had the Bible used on them in that way? Like, it's another thing you aren't doing. It's another way you're not measuring up. It's another thing that you should have been here, and you're down here, right? So what do you do with that? And we're in a series about being contagious, about sort of launching a viral infection of goodness in the world. How do you share joy when sometimes we don't even know what it is, and we don't feel it very much? That's how we talk about joy, right, is a feeling. Like, I don't feel joyful today. How do you begin to infect other people with joy when you don't have it? How do you rejoice always when the joy tank is on empty? Well, I want to offer today a different way to think about joy. I I think when we talk about joy, we generally have our terminology confused. And I want to think about it like this. Um, How many of you ever thought about the difference between climate and weather? Anybody? Okay, so there's this myth that joy and happiness are the same thing, right? That, that you can interchange those words. I'm happy and I'm joyful and those are the same thing. When you meet a person who's really, really happy in the moment, you would say, that's a joyful human being, right? But I, I don't think those are true. I don't think joy and happiness are the same thing. I, I think we can think about it as the difference between climate and weather. Uh, climate is the weather over a long period of time, right? It's why when you go to a place that's tropical, you don't pack your, like, winter coat, right? Because you know, what, you know what the climate is there. Weather is, basically refers to changes in the atmosphere that happen all the time. Right? So today, uh, the last couple days, it's been kind of cool, right? Compared to what it was. Tomorrow, it's supposed to be like in the upper 80s, I think. The weather changes every day. And if you live in this part of the world, at least I, know in, I don't know, maybe it's different here in Nashville, but in Kentucky, you can experience all four seasons in like one day. Morning, noon, night, and then late night. You have all sorts of different things going on in the weather. So weather changes all the time, but climate is sort of this steady, uh, hopefully, not not so much in the world we live in now, but it should be this steady uh, expectation of what weather is like over a long period of time. Let's, Let's try today to think about joy as the climate and happiness as the weather. Right? Joy as the climate, happiness is the weather. I think one of the things that um, robs us of joy most of the time is that we tend to allow circumstantial happiness to dictate reality. And it's really hard not to. How many of you, when you wake up and something goes wrong right away, you immediately think in your head, it's going to be a bad day? Anybody? So you wake up and realize that you forgot to get a new toothbrush, or you wake up and you realize that your kids are sick, or you wake up and you realize that you're out of oatmeal, like whatever the thing would be that would just rock your world, I'm... Oatmeal's a big one, but like whatever your thing would be. Um, you get stuck in traffic, you're running late for work, you spill coffee on, like whatever that thing is. It can set the tone for the whole day and it can set the tone negatively, right? Like this is going to be a bad, bad day. And then something happens and we have that emotional whiplash. We're like, this is a really good day. I mean, imagine this. You spill coffee all over yourself and a bird bombs you from above and then you win the lottery. What kind of day was it? Right, you won the lottery. You, don't, you could buy new clothes. You could buy new friends. You don't need anything. All right, you won the lottery. 
I actually thought about this on the way here. For the first time in my life today, we saw, I saw on the way here, a bald eagle in the wild, right? It was swooping. It wasn't that glamorous. There was something dead in the road and it was swooping down to get a bite. So like (laughs) when it happened and it's going down for the roadkill, I looked at my wife and said, majestic, right? Like just this, never seen one in the wild. Now that was a nice bird sighting. But most of the time in my life, when I've been around birds, it has gone poorly because I have a target on my back or on my head. We were in New York City last, last year and we were walking down the street eating an ice cream cone and I got totally demolished by like three or four birds at one time. Just zooming. I had a very different experience of that than I did seeing the bald eagle this morning. That was awesome. That made me mad, right? So whatever happens, circumstantial happiness, the sort of the ups and downs of a typical day, it can leave you with emotional whiplash and it can leave you feeling like you're a person who doesn't have a lot of joy to offer in the world. But that's just today. Like that's just a moment. That's just some things that happened within a 24 hour period of your life. It doesn't have to define your capacity to be a person who not only possesses this, whatever this thing is called joy, but you could actually share it with people around you. And I think the other thing that really limits us is that we want to compare ourselves to other people all the time. And I think comparison kills joy quicker than anything. I often wonder if LeBron and Michael Jordan get together and talk about who's better. Have you, you all been in that debate ever? You basketball people, like who's better? Who's the greatest of all time? Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? And people are very passionate. I don't think either one of those guys care because they're both doing okay, right? And yet the way we tend to operate in this world is we compare, we know how we're doing based on how they're doing, right? And here's how you know we're doing well. We're doing a little bit better than they are, right? And so we compare ourselves, we compare our possessions, we compare our checkbooks, we compare all of our lives. How many of you have ever done this before? Like you see other people's kids behaving and you're like, my kids don't do that. Anybody else ever had that happen? Right? You compare how other parents are under pressure and you're like, that's not me. You compare how other people respond to difficult situations and you're like, it's not me. It's not me. And you, we walk around with this sense of, we're not them. Here's the good news. You were never supposed to be them. Like that's not what you signed up for in life. It's not to be them. It's to be the only you that you can be. There's actually this great story in the Gospels that happens on the heels of Jesus' resurrection in John 21. He's resurrected in John 21. And then in John, in John 20. In John 21, there's an, what seems like an extra story that didn't originally go with the Gospel of John that was added to the end because somebody thought this story is too good and too important not to share. And it's, the story revolves around one of Jesus' disciples, Simon Peter, the guy who denied Jesus, the guy who uh, ran away when he should have ran, like all that sort of stuff. And, and Jesus is having this conversation with him. It's John 20, verse, beginning in verse 18. Jesus has just said to Peter three times, do you love me? All right? And if you know the story, no spoiler alert here, uh, or maybe uh, Simon Peter has denied Jesus three times. Jesus comes back after the resurrection and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And here's what Jesus follows that with. I assure you that when you were younger, that you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after he said this, he said to Peter, follow me. Here's what Jesus says. Okay, you're back in the game. This is going to end poorly for you. You, You're going to die for this thing that you're saying you want to be a part of. It's going to cost you your life. 
The freedom you've known as a younger person is going to be gone, and you are going to eventually, church legend, tradition, we don't really know, but it says Peter was crucified as well. That's what he says to him. You want to follow me? Here's what you're signing up for. Notice what he does next. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. By the way, if you're the person who got to write one of the Gospels and you name yourself the disciple who Jesus loved, you win for eternity because nobody can contradict that, right? He sees this other disciple following them, the one who had leaned against Jesus at the meal, uh, and and Peter says to Jesus, what about him? This moment where Jesus essentially says, here is the mission and purpose of your life. You lead this thing and you die for it. And he's like, okay, what about that guy? What about him? Because if I'm going to die, I want to know that he's going to die too. If I'm going to suffer, I want him to suffer equally. And here's what Jesus says. If I want him to remain alive until I come, what difference does that make? What is that to you? You must follow me. Why are you worried about his story? Why are you worried about his work? Why are you worried about what I've given him to do? I've given you a thing to do. And it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be arduous, and it's going to be painful at times, and it's also going to make you alive in ways you never imagined. Don't worry about what I've given him. Worry about what I'm giving you. So next time, if you have kids and they say to you, well, why does so-and-so's mom let them do that? Just be like, Jesus said, what is that to you? Like, it's not me, it's the Lord. Said, it's none of your business what your friends are doing. Right, what what if we tried to live our lives without worried, and and what that comparison comes from is, is a place of scarcity. Right, we believe there's only so much goodness in the world that goes around. We believe there's only so much opportunity There's only so much blessing. There's only so much available. And so if we don't get ours, somebody else is going to get ours. So we've got to fight, elbow, claw, scratch, punch, whatever we got to do to be front of the line, because if we're not, we're going to miss out on what's ours. I do not think that's how the universe works. I do not think there's only so much goodness to go around. And if we don't hurt people to get ours, if we don't run over people or compare ourselves or go into debt trying to keep up with, like, whatever, it's not that way. This is not a, a universe of scarcity. And comparison feeds into that fear and that scarcity mentality. Here's what I think joy is. I, I think joy cannot be talked about without talking about hope. I know you're thinking like, that's like the first and third week of Advent. Why are we doing it in April? Um, I, I just think those two things really go together. I think joy is grounded in hope. And here's what I mean by hope. I don't mean wishing. I don't mean wishing. I think sometimes we confuse hope and wishing. Like, here's what I wish for. Well, I get it. Here's what I really, really want. I'm going to, like, cross my fingers, close my eyes, throw a penny in the well, wish for it. That's not what hope is. Hope is essentially seeing the, seeing the world as it could be and then doing everything in your power to help make that world come about. Right? Hope doesn't ignore the, the realities of the world. It would be absolutely foolish to look at the world a world where we continually have mass shootings, a world where people are still unequal, a world where white supremacy is on the rise. It would be ridiculous to look at that world and say, it's exactly as it needs to be. Because it's not, right? It's not. But what hope does is it looks at the world as it is and sees within it something that could be born out of it that would be better. And then hope says, I'm going to do everything I can to see that world come about. 
And when you take that perspective, joy becomes not only possible, but real. So this guy, Paul, who wrote a couple of the um, verses we looked at earlier in 1 Thessalonians and Philippians, I want to read you some more from Philippians. And here's why I want to read it to you. We sort of pointed out how silly it was to say rejoice in the Lord always, right? Seems like something, and you probably have seen it on a bumper sticker or something like that, right? A wall hanging, rejoice in the Lord always. Here's where that comes from. When Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he's not at the Hilton. He's in jail. And the context of the letter is he's writing them and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He may end up being killed for his willingness to preach this countercultural message of God's love for every single human being. Like he could die. This could be his last letter written. Notice what he says here in verse three. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray and it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you've been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed until now. I'm sure about this. The one who began a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job. Now, by the way, if you were writing you've been imprisoned and you're writing a letter from prison, do you begin with, I am so thankful? Is that how you begin a letter from prison? I am really, really grateful. No, Paul says, I am grateful. And then he says, I pray with joy. And here's why. I've become confident that the one who began the good work in you is going to see it through. On death row, he's grateful and he's hopeful and he's joyful. And I would argue it's because he, he isn't looking at them right into the circumstance. He's not just seeing his chains, but he's seeing his own life through this larger story, which is my chains are doing a thing. My chains are doing something. They're causing something. Something's happening even though I'm jailed. This good news is growing. People's lives are being transformed. And I'm confident that the one who began this work is also the one who will finish it. Essentially, Paul says, I'm confident that this isn't all there is. I'm confident that there's more going on here than we can possibly know. There's a larger story. Paul sees his life through a larger lens. It's hard to do, isn't it? Like when you're stuck in the daily, the muck and the mire of every day to realize that our lives are part of a much bigger story and that the thing we're trying to do in this world, we may not even get to appreciate. Paul didn't get to appreciate the work he was doing. And, and in so many ways, we're trying to build a world. Like communities like Grace Point are trying to build a world we, we, we may not live to enjoy, but we hope our kids will. We hope our grandkids will. I, every time I think about this text from Paul, by the way, in, in chapter 4, verse 13, he has that great line that everybody quotes. Um, I've learned how to be content in any and all circumstances. How many of you know this? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we read that verse for football teams before they play for the championship. Because right, that's clearly what Paul had in mind. is like, you can beat the Yes, they're more skilled, they're more talented, they're better coached, but you've got Jesus. Because Jesus loves the underdog, right? I don't think that's what Paul's saying in Philippians 4. Here's what I think he's saying. I've learned the secret to being content. And that is realizing there's a larger story I'm playing a role in. And realizing that my life matters in this story and that it's going somewhere good even though I may never see it. I always think about um, Martin Luther King Jr. when I read this text. Because uh, Dr. King saw and envisioned a world that has still not yet been fully realized. But he saw it. 
And, and that hope he had for where the world could go brought him joy. Um, April 3rd, 1968, he was um, in Memphis. He was giving a speech, I believe it was to a group of sanitation workers who were on strike. It was the last speech Dr. King would give. He would be assassinated the next day. I want to play you a clip of how he ends that sermon. And you could call it a speech, but that is a sermon. It's called The Mountaintop. How many of you are familiar with The Mountaintop speech sermon? So listen to Dr. King's words here um, as he wraps up the speech. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now, I, I think if you read Dr. King's biographies, I, the reality is that he gives that speech because he knows, he knows that he's on borrowed time. The amount of hate and the amount of resistance that he faced on a daily basis, the handwriting was on the wall. And he gets up, and I don't know that he knew it was his last speech, I probably didn't know it was his last speech, but he gets up and he gives this, this sermon, and it's full of energy and it's full of joy and it's full of hope and he says there's a world that will be born and I may not get there with you and you all some of you all may not get there with it but our descendants are going to get to the promised land and he used the word happy but we all know what he was really talking about was joy right because I don't care who you are I don't care how thick and tough your skin is criticism Hate, that gets to you, right? I mean, I know that it's like, oh, it doesn't, but no, of course it bothers us. I'm sure it weighed heavy on his head and heart. And yet he saw a world that was waiting to be born. And he was full of hope. I mean, that's why people marched with Dr. King, right? You, you, don't, you don't march with somebody who's a pessimist. Like, you try to line people up and go, the world is terrible, let's march. Nobody's signing up. But you can say this, the world is broken, the world is struggling, the world's unjust, the world has inequality, and we can do something about it. There's a better world waiting to be born if we're willing to make it so. And people marched with Dr. King. And he gave his life, and Paul gave his life, and Jesus gave his life for this better world. Now, when Christians talk about joy, there's often this sort of elimination and minimization of pain. Um, Like, oh, well, 
I'll never forget one time I was, uh, it was the first, it was my home church. I, I got to be the interim pastor there for a few months um, uh, when I was 19 years old. It was a poor choice on everybody's part, but we did it. And I remember um, that one of the people in the church had uh, lost a very close family member. And I was, after everything was over, I went over to him and on, on that Sunday and I said, I'm so sorry to hear about your, I think it was his grandma, I'm so sorry to hear about your grandma. He's like, oh, I'm happy. I'm happy because she's in a better place and she's great and she's good and I'm so happy. And I was like, I, I get that, but I know there has to be, no, it's all good. Like that sort of not realizing and owning your pain doesn't go anywhere good. So a Christian story without grief, a Christian story without loss, a Christian story without wounds, like when we try to tell that story, it just doesn't make sense. That's not how the world works. That's not how the Jesus story works. Standing at the center of the Christian tradition is a cross that leads, gives way to a resurrection, but it's still a cross, right? It's still a place of wounding. It's still a place of pain. Wounds are difficult. They're painful. And yet what we see in these people, Jesus, Paul, Dr. King, and so many others, is this reality of holding pain, feeling it, and yet because you have this hopeful vision of the world, you can still celebrate where things are going even though it's costing you something. Right? Even though it's costing you, you see where it's going. And I think that's the kind of joy, that kind of hope-fueled joy is what's contagious. It's what other people want from, they want it. They maybe don't even know how to access it. They don't even know it's already inside them just waiting to be unlocked. That's the thing. Like, you don't have to go looking for joy. It's not like under a rock or in the backseat of the trunk of the new car. It's in you. It's in you. It just has to be unlocked. The, the, the spiritual life is not this endless grasping and chasing for the next thing. It's often sitting still and allowing the thing that is already in you to be born. And so when we talk about joy, I'm not saying go find this thing, go turn up every rock. I'm saying, what if we were just cultivate an awareness of what's already, what is, the, what is it that is bringing us hope and how can that birth joy in our lives? So how many of you have seen, um, uh, is it Marie Kondo? Is that, is that right? Yeah. On Netflix? What is her, her, her shtick, her line is? Here's how, she helps people declutter, right? And here's what she says. Here's how you decide what to keep and what to get rid of. Does it bring you joy? Now, here's the problem. Everything can bring you, like in that frame of reference, well, I don't want to get rid of that. It brings me joy. You don't use it. But if I did, it would bring me joy, right? I don't want to clean out the garage. I'm sure everything in there brings me joy. Just don't know yet. But what she's getting at ultimately is when, when, you, have a, when you see a thing, is it really something that means something to you or is it just something? Uh, what if we were to talk about joy in this way? What if we were to talk about paying attention? So that when we talk about joy, what we're saying is, uh, there is a larger story that I'm giving my life to. There is a larger story that I'm giving my hope to. There's a larger story that I'm giving my energy to. And that larger story is making me more hopeful and more joyful about where this world is headed, about where my life is headed, about where, like this hopeful joy. And so here, here's, here's the challenge I wanna give you sort of as your homework. Is it okay to give homework? Okay. Here's your homework. And if you come to uh, reconstruct on Thursday night at the Red Bicycle, we can begin with this and just sort of knock this around a bit. This week, think about what brings you joy. And not in the superficial, trivial sense, right? Like, I ate tacos one day last week for all three meals. <laughs> right? The joy of the Lord is my strength that day, friends. I can tell you. Not that kind of joy. I'm talking about the deeper joy. 
the thing that inspires hope, the thing that inspires trust, the thing that inspires your willingness to give yourself to something and to work for it and to partner with other people to make it. So this vision of the world that can actually ultimately, as you're working and you're sweating and you're processing your pain, you can actually begin to be joyful about. Richard Orr says that healthy religion helps us process pain. It doesn't minimize it. It shows us what to do with it. And most of the people um, that I know who have gone through, who are okay and who've gone through really difficult things, it was in those moments of pain, they found a larger story to live with and they transformed their pain into healing for other people. Right? They didn't just sit in their pain, they processed it and used it as something to bring healing to other people. And in that work, they found joy. So Grace Point, what brings you joy? What is it that gives you this hopeful sense that the world is heading somewhere and that you get to be a part of shaping it and making it happen? What is it that you would be willing to join hands with other people and and march for? What is it that makes you look at the world with all of its problems and all of its pain and all of its chaos and say, that is not a lost cause. It's something that is waiting on something new and beautiful to be born. Are you with me? Let's pray. God, for this joy we long. And we are aware that this joy is not somewhere else. It's not hiding somewhere else. It's not under a rock or waiting at a store to be purchased. This sort of joy is already within us, waiting to be opened and unlocked and unleashed into the world. We are grateful for those who've gone before us, who inspire us, the Pauls, the Dr. Kings, the Jesuses, who show us what to do with pain and how to transform it into something healing and joyful for the world. So I pray for those of us today who are processing fresh wounds or that we're running our fingers over the scars of deep wounds. May we not process that pain alone. Being in community is is about having others to journey through these difficult moments with us. But may we also not give our pain and our wounds and our scars the last word. When we think about joy, may we not just think about this moment and how we feel. May we think about the larger story we're giving our lives to. May we think about the larger work that is out there waiting for us. And may we be so inspired and so filled with hope that we're willing to join our lives together to make that world come into existence. We love you. We're so grateful that we get to do this together as a community. We offer this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...